0: What's good, everybody? You're listening to Code Switch. I'm Gene Demby. My partner in crime, Shireen Marisol Meraji, is out this week. But on this podcast, we want to talk about school desegregation and busing with our play cousin, Audie Cornish. You probably know she's the host of NPR's All Things Considered, and she's going to join us in a moment. But before we do all that, we want to rewind a little bit. Boston today had one of its worst days
1: since court-ordered busing for school desegregation began last September. It was the second straight day of trouble. Yesterday, whites stoned a school bus carrying black students. And today, a white student was stabbed at South Boston High School. He was
0: later reported in good condition. A black student was arrested for the stabbing. That report we just heard is from December 11th, 1974. And American cities, just like Boston, were in the middle of a heated often very ugly fight over how or if they should racially integrate their public schools. And in a lot of ways, Boston became the symbol for the violent resistance to that idea. But even in Boston, there was this one school integration program, a busing program, as it turns out, that wasn't controversial at all. In fact, that program is still around today and it has support from Democrats and Republicans. It's called METCO, which stands for the Metropolitan Council for Educational Opportunity. And as part of that program, black kids from Boston's inner city get on a bus every day to go to schools in some of the richer, whiter, and politically liberal towns in the city's suburbs. And the METCO program actually predates the court-ordered desegregation of Boston schools in 1974. Uh, It predates it by almost a decade. But the fact that that program is still around tells us a lot about just how politically delicate the act of integrating schools, even voluntarily integrating schools, has been and still is. So, Audie recently did a couple stories on that Metco program, and in her reporting, she offered up a little detail that we found very intriguing and that we wanted to get into.
1: I know a little bit about these kinds of programs because I was in one as a kid. a Voluntary school busing program in Boston that has helped tens of thousands of city kids get their education in neighboring suburbs.
0: So we're like, all right, hold up, hold up, hold up. I tried to sneak it in there. (laughs) We wanted to get Audie in the studio and get all of her business. Um, Audie Cornish, thank you, finally.
1: Yeah, yeah, so exciting. Thank you for having me.
0: All right, so um, the shoe's on the other foot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You say in one of the stories that when you were in the Metco program that you always felt like... A guest at the school that you were being bused to. Could you say a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, just for a little bit of background, I was only in the program for a few years in elementary school. Mm-hmm. So uh, this would have been in the late 80s. And my parents and, and I came to the U.S. Uh, I think around 1980 or so. From? Uh, from Jamaica. Okay. And so my parents, when they came to this country and came to Boston, people were like, oh you need to sign up for the MECO program. So they like had me on the waiting list and I didn't get into it until I was like in the third grade, second or third grade.
0: Did you know what the MECO program was? Oh no,
1: you're just a little kid then. Mm. I mean, what I knew is that one year I had been going to a school with mostly black students. And then one year I was on a bus and I was going to a school with mostly white students. Mm. And um, I, you know, you're told like you're going to a better place, which sounds creepy when you say it like that, but the implication (laughs) is like, you're about to get an, upgrade, so to speak. And then you get there. For me, I distinctly remember this being the first time I understood the concept of class. Hmm. It's the first time I saw bigger houses and uh, like, you know a nice carpeted classroom and like toys Carpet, and colors okay. and i know I, look carpets were a big deal okay <laughs> you know i'm coming from my little two bedroom uh, apartment my my family has and getting on this bus and like i go to some kids house after school and it's bonkers like mm. it just feels crazy it's like a kitchen with an island like an island your your kitchen's big enough to have an island in it like it was so mind blowing so I remember it very distinctly because I was in the Boston public school system and in a mostly black school, went to the Metco program in a suburb, it's a suburb of Newton, which is still a very good and um, expensive, I guess is the word, Mm -hmm. school system. And then afterwards, we moved to a more middle class, but definitely multiracial suburb. So I had like these three distinct schooling experiences. And that's why the Metco one stands out.
0: You were saying that you your parents didn't want to be in the story because they, yeah. there was a stigma about them being... I think so.
1: They still had this idea that, you know, one of the things about MECO is if the narrative is always we are busing poor black and Latino children from one place mm. to the rich place, then the implication is, like, everybody in that program is poor, which it does not have any kind of economic threshold. Basically, you just... You live in the city and you can apply for it. Mm -hmm. Um, So when people have actually tried to study the makeup of METCO, they have found that while they do have, like, a significant percentage of um, students who would qualify for, say, free lunch or something, if that's the measure, the other half is middle class. Mm -hmm. Um, So... I think my parents sort of felt like, why are you gonna tell everybody that (laughs) that we were poor? You know, like you you had a good education and we made sure you had a good education. That's all they need to know. That's my parents' attitude.
0: Um, so before we save the episode, you said that busing in Boston was like abortion. It was like that radioactive.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, it was one of the most high profile of busing desegregation stories in mm-hmm. the 70s. The Mecco program uh, actually predates the whole busing story right before the court orders yeah so in 1974 there's this uh, court order famously by uh, Judge Arthur Garrity who basically says yes Boston your school is segregated and yes your plans to desegregate it using busing need to go forward stop slow walking this that's the thing everybody knows about because it was like in the news for weeks, like mm-hmm. 18 buses were damaged or something, like the police damaged were by. called in, damaged by uh, like p- people and protesters in South Boston in particular, but in other areas of the city because the desegregation order required a big shuffling of the deck within city limits, right? So you had neighborhood schools mm-hmm. that were um, more than 50, 60% of one race or another, right? Boston has a obviously robust white population. And the MECO program actually started 10 years before that, um, oh. when these parents were still struggling to find a way to get the attention of the Boston Schools Black, Committee. Parents. Yeah, black parents were basically like, we can't get them to move on these desegregation efforts. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, we, we think our schools are not Good. We think they're overcrowded. That was a big thing. And we think that we're not getting the resources that other schools in the city are getting. And what can we do? And one of the things they did was partner with a white school system in the suburbs. I think it was Brookline to start. Mm -hmm. And I was listening to archival audio, which I couldn't include in our story of one of the founders, um, Ruth Batson. she said that, you know, some young, white, hip, like Brookline's school superintendent was like, hey, you know, we want to partner with you. What can we do? Would it work for the kids to come here? And that's kind of how MECO started, just voluntarily. And with these two groups, these kind of um, progressive white Suburban school officials and and to some extent their parents, right? Because the parents have to agree for this to happen. And um, these black activist uh, parents who said, all right, let's like get some cars. And then later they said, let's get some buses.
0: So the fact that Metco was and is voluntary is a big part of the reason that it is so popular, or at least um, that it's so well-regarded, right?
1: Well, I think it's the reason why it has outlasted anything else. So essentially, the Boston busing crisis happened because it was involuntary, right? That was like a mandatory ruling issued by a court. No one wanted that. But with a voluntary program, each school district gets to say, sure, I'll take a couple kids, or I'll take a few hundred kids, Mm -hmm. or my parents are okay if I take this many kids, or I'll take them from kindergarten through the sixth grade or like it's it's kind of all on the terms of the school district so you're not asking anything of the parents who are better resourced you're merely opening your doors to people who, who need support and help and so everyone can kind of feel good about that mm-hmm. um over the decades it's also come to be seen as a school choice program as that became a political argument. So there are plenty of like Republicans and conservative voices in Massachusetts. Um, Yes, those exist. And (laughs) they like the MECO program because to them it's school choice. And, you know, for the record, I think something like 25 percent of the school age kids in Boston are like going to, you know, a private school or parochial school or like, Metco or homeschooling. There's a lot of people who have kind well, of the traditional have opted out of the Boston public school system, even though it's a pretty good school system comparatively.
0: So, when you're reporting out the story, you go back to your old neighborhood.
1: Weirdest experience of my life.
0: <laughs> you follow these two brothers who are in the Metco program as they get on the bus every day. It was some ungodly hours. Some it was like dumb <laughs> early, like five fifteen in the morning, as they're getting ready to get on the bus to go to school. Yeah, the same bus route they used to take, right, to go to the same. Suburb they used to go to.
1: Yeah. And um, it was it was very weird. It was a neighborhood in Boston called Mattapan. Mm-hmm. And a lot of um, sort of black and brown communities are in the neighborhood of Mattapan, Dorchester, Roxbury. These are names people might have heard here and there if they've heard of Boston. But Boston does still feel to me when I'm there segregated. Mm-hmm. Um and for lack of a a better term, it was also weird getting up at six thirty in the morning, which is what I did as a kid. Mm -hmm. In this Caribbean household, you know, where the moms like making ginger tea. Morning. Okay, what's going on? You want some ginger tea? I hear you coughing. The parents are like talking about homework and getting to the bus, the ride to the bus, the bus stop for these kids, the Bailey family, um, the bus where they're getting picked up to go to Newton that stop was two blocks from my uncle's house like where he lives right now wow
0: so this is your life <laughs> like you could
1: have gone and like knocked on his door mm. and been like uncle you know and then we get on this bus ride to newton and I, it's like i had ptsd and i don't know <laughs> for any of you who have not been on a school bus in a minute it all comes back okay <laughs> let's just get it out there the smell Okay, because it's like a bunch Those of little nasty kids. Vinyl seats. Plus, right? you're like, yelling your heads off and like nasty. sweating your heads off. It's like.
0: No ex- shots on the bus. Ex- so you're bouncing around. No
1: shocks. The, the seat belts are um, like swaying, you know, scratching the floor. That sound is. And it's so loud. It's very loud. It's yeah. like the loudest thing ever. Now I'm in my comfortable car and I'm just like, how did I do it? <laughs> and then you get there and like the kids in the suburbs aren't even at school yet. Mm. And it was the same thing when we went there um, with this kid, Brandon. He, they had him, like, in a room. They had the MECO kids playing basketball, just, like, kind of waiting. Just killing time. Killing right? time. I mean, it was only for, like, 15, 20 minutes, but it's, yeah, that's time. You're not, like, having breakfast or doing homework or mm-hmm. whatever.
0: So there was a woman in your story. Her name was Alyssa Azorla. She was a counselor for the kids in the Mecco program. She was basically sort of helping them debrief about, you know, the challenges they were having in being part of this program and navigating these schools, Um, Did you have a counselor? Were there there counselors for Metco Kids when you were there?
1: I did not. Yeah, Metco now assigns a special counselor to each school system, um, maybe a couple per town, and they go to every school and they help the teachers with assignment plans. They counsel the kids about their grades Mm -hmm. or social things or having problems with bullying, things like that, whether on the bus or in the school itself. Mm -hmm. And I should say when we visited the school, um, Arzola had lunch with these boys. They have a boys group and a girls group separately. And there actually were a few white kids in the class who were like friends with the Mecco kids and wanted to come with them. It is Mm -hmm. is an open space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like there's nothing to stop (laughs) their white classmates from like joining them in these things. Um, But... They didn't have that when I was young. So, who
0: did you talk to about it? Did you talk to anybody about it?
1: I didn't talk to anybody. You know, I was like a little kid, and what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. It's like my parents had a job being my parents and like <laughs> putting a roof over her head. And like I had a job, which was like being the kid and going to school and dealing with that stuff. But your
0: sister was a Metco kid. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. did you guys talk? Did you, you and her talk about it? No, she was
1: very young. Mm. She was like in the second grade, first or second grade. Mm-hmm. So, I was
0: taking care of her.
1: I was like when we got off the bus, right? I was the one that made sure that we both got off the bus.
0: So we're going to come back to Audie's experience in a little bit, but we want to zoom out and bring in Matthew Delmont. He's a history professor at Arizona State University. He's the author of Why Busing Failed, Race, Media, and the National Resistance to School Segregation. Matthew, welcome to Code Switch. Thanks for having me, Jane. Um, what jumps out to you when you listen to Audie talk about her experience in the MECO program? Is like, uh, a lot of this probably sounds familiar to other similar programs, right?
2: Yeah. So I think what's important about I's experience is that it's a great example of the kind of opportunities that programs like MECO opened up, that having these kind of busing programs, uh, creating education opportunities for students who are coming from intercity schools, even if they're middle class backgrounds, mm-hmm. and having those programs last for decades was is a real accomplishment. The, there was such pushback and such blowback against busing both in Boston, but also nationally, that to have this program last for multiple decades is is a real testament to it. I uh, hear but a like, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the, and the but is the the kind of bittersweetness that underlies what is saying in, for, in two ways. One, that it puts such a burden on the students of color who are participating in the program that it's not a two-way thing. It's not a two-way exchange. It's black and Latino students primarily who are bearing the burden of this, being on buses 30 minutes, 45 minutes, getting up extraordinary early, uh, staying after school. They have to do all the, the work there. They also have to be the kind of cultural ambassadors of what integration looks like. It's all on the terms of basically how much integration these suburban school districts are willing to take. But I think the larger sort of bittersweetness of this is that the program itself has remained relatively the same size since the 1970s. So Mm -hmm. uh, it starts in the 1960s. By the 1970s, it's about 3,000 students. Uh, I checked recently and it's at uh, 3,300 students today. So so it hasn't that, grown
0: or expanded, right?
2: Yeah. So it's something that it's, those are spread across 35 school districts. So it's something that had the potential to be successful on a large scale, I think. But it's it's done great work, but it's done great work for a relatively small fraction of uh, public school students in, in Boston.
0: And if you're yeah. saying it's spread out over 35 school districts, that means that there are very few black and Latino kids in any given school in the MECO program.
2: Exactly. Exactly because those school districts are not just individual schools there are high schools elementary schools within those school districts so i think any given school is unlikely to be receiving more than uh, a couple dozen MECO students and i think one of the issues there is then it's that's a tough environment to put uh, young students of color in to be one of a, a handful less than five or ten percent of students in a in a school it's both not in your neighborhood but also is a different class dynamic different mm-hmm. racial dynamic that's a lot to ask but yet Students have have done it for generations because it does open up doors that aren't generally available in Boston's public schools.
0: Was there was there something about Boston in particular that made it uh, a national flashpoint in the conversation about busing and the debate over uh, a forced busing of schools?
2: Yeah, I think that the thing that people like to think about Boston is it's somehow uniquely racist. That they'll, they'll point to the Irish in South Boston and say mm. that it's somehow unique in its racism. And I don't think that's exactly true. The, the magnitude of the protests in Boston were significant, but there'd been large-scale protests against busing uh, starting as early as the 1950s in New York. Um, people blew up buses, empty buses in Pontiac and in Denver. So there'd been a lot of protests against busing so i don't think the the type of racism that you saw going on in boston was unique i think the amount of media coverage it received that's what was unique once uh, these tv stations from abc nbc cbs once they're on the ground there in 1974 they don't leave for two years they're there reporting whether something good happens or something bad happens and i think that kind of escalates the tensions um, and it makes us a flashpoint that it gets lodged in people's memories that boston becomes the the real kind of flashpoint of what busing looks like. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't want to understate that there were significant tensions there. There were massive protests, but um, I think we we misunderstand the history of busing if we think it's just about Boston.
0: So we know today that New York City, which, you know, is considered like a bastion of liberalism and progressivism, is has one of the most segregated school systems in the country. And I'm just curious as to how New York City, places like New York City, um, and Boston managed to sidestep um, these efforts to desegregate, like how did they manage to, to, to end up in this place where uh, they are more segregated than places we typically think of, think of as uh, like hotbeds of segregation like Little Rock, Arkansas? And
2: yeah, I think the important thing to know about the way segregation, school segregation happens outside of the South is that politicians and school officials have more political clout to basically define what segregation looks like and define what it's going to take for federal officials to, to uproot segregation. Hmm. So what I mean by that is when they're debating the Civil Rights Act in 1964, in order to get it passed, I mean, it's a tremendously controversial bill. The Southerners are never going to go along with it. In order to get the support of politicians from outside the South, from the Midwest, North, and the West, they have to explicitly write in provisions that say we're only going to pursue desegregation cases in the South. We're not going to pursue these cases against what they called racial imbalance, which is a euphemism for what segregation looked like in cities like Boston, New York, and Chicago. So they explicitly write into this legislation that the federal government is not going to go into these cities to uproot segregation. That has a profound impact because uh, civil rights activists, women like Ruth Batson, who Adi mentioned, mm-hmm. they see this happen. They understand the the subtext here. They understand that this is a, a loophole that's going to give the Boston School Committee an out. It's going to mean that federal officials can't come in and force Boston School Committee um, to desegregate. Mm-hmm. So the, the import of this is that you have all these schools in Chicago, Boston, New York. When they, these cases finally get to court, the judges find that they've intentionally segregated the schools, they've drawn school district lines in ways that perpetuate white schools and black schools, they have uh, more qualified teachers in the white schools, they have more resources to go into white schools. But because the politicians have written the laws in such a way to say that that doesn't count for desegregation, the, the language they use is they call it de facto, right? Well, when they right. actually get in the court, it Judge Pierre is ruling. Well,
0: yeah, it it's like, happened by, like, this is the natural order of things
2: as people who yeah, shook out, yeah, out the way they shook out. Yeah, it's just somehow innocent, right? But they basically have the political clout to to write segregation, to define segregation in a way that says the segregation is what it looks like in Little Rock, Montgomery, Selma. It's not what it looks like in Chicago, Boston, and New York. Um, and as a result, school segregation flourishes outside of the South.
0: All right, y'all, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, more with Matthew Delmont and Audie. Stick around.
2: Let's take a moment to thank and share a message from our sponsor, LearnVest. Did you know the average indebted American household has over $16,000 in credit card debt and 31% of Americans have zero retirement savings? The good news is, LearnVest is here to help. LearnVest is redefining financial planning by making it affordable and accessible to everyday Americans. When you work with LearnVest, you tell them what you want to accomplish with your money And they'll create a customized financial plan to help you get there. To see a financial plan and get a $50 credit, go to learnvest.com slash codeswitch.
0: Thanks for listening to Code Switch. Seriously, thank you. If you're looking for a brainy laugh, you should check out the Ask Me Another podcast for hilarious puzzles word games, and trivia. You can test your knowledge of favorite TV moms with Connie Britton, stage superhero fights with Wyatt Sidnack, and roll a 20-sided die with David Harbour from Stranger Things. Ask Me Another is your favorite game night, but it's a whole lot funnier. So you can play along now on the NPR One app or at npr.org slash podcast. And now, back to my conversation with Audie Cornish and the historian Matthew Delmont. So... Is there any real political momentum around school desegregation? Have we just decided, sort of, as a country, that desegregating schools is just too big a political hurdle to clear?
1: Yeah, or to jump in here, we are talking about it, Gene. Oh, I mean. right. Like, which I don't think people were talking about it as much as they are in these last few years. Fair. It might be because of the Brown v. Education anniversary. Matthew Delmont, you can tell me, but it feels like this conversation has gotten a lot louder.
2: Yes. And so I think, Gene, to your, your question, it remains extraordinarily politically controversial. Um, mm-hmm. But to Adi's point, we're talking about it a lot more. And I think a lot of that has to do with the work of Nicole Hannah-Jones that, and other folks like, like yourselves that are getting this out in the media. I think one of the, the tensions that people have is that we every anniversary for Brown, there's a sense of Brown versus board happened X number of years ago, yet our schools are still segregated. How did this happen? Right. I, I think it's only in the last few years people have really started to sort of dig into the details of, okay. Actually, how did this <laughs> why do we still have segregated schools? Those raise some really hard questions. And I think the political hurdles are the same today as they were in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. That this takes a different set of political choices if people want to actually integrate schools and i think it's it's no easier today than it was in these previous decades to convince people with access to resources to share those resources or to give up some of those resources
1: you know matthew my other theory about this is that with gentrification and the i guess reverse <laughs> migration of like uh, white families especially of a certain class in many major cities mm-hmm. like that this is another reason why you now have this like this generation whose parents left for the suburbs um, in part because of like what was going on with uh, desegregation and integration efforts. Like now they're back in the city and now they're starting to have kids, school age kids. And like I think they're talking about these things differently than their parents did.
2: I, I think that's absolutely right. I think you you have a different demographic of people who are invested, who have an investment in urban public education than, than you did uh, two decades ago. So I think that's a great point.
0: So at the risk of, of sounding like the Seneca, um, what is a program like Metco that's still just humming along quietly um, and sending a uh, token number of brown kids into the suburbs? What's the political calculus there? Like, I mean, what's in it for white people to be invested and in participate
2: in this program? I think two things I would point to. One, so it grows out of this movement in the 60s, initially starts being linked to a fair housing movement. So there is a sense of kind of liberal do-gooderism, that Mm -hmm. this is a way that these communities see that they can help with the urban issues of the 1960s. And I think that's probably still in play today. Uh, But the other important issue, which we haven't touched on yet, is that there's uh, financial resources that come with each Meco student. So the districts receive somewhere between 5,000 and 17,000 per student that they take. Hmm. So the receiving communities communities like Concord and Lexington, they've never done this strictly because of altruism. They they think it is a way to help students from Boston Public Schools, but it's also something that they get resources for it. I think that's one of the things that's limited the growth of METCO is that the program's constantly battling for funds and These local communities in the suburbs, they don't have to pay their local tax dollars to educate MECO students. That money is coming either from MECO fundraising or primarily from from state tax dollars. So I think that's Hmm. that's what's in it for the the suburban communities.
1: Right. And as the funding doesn't keep up every once in a while, you'll have communities where they'll um, have maybe a rise in the school age population in that suburb. And they'll say, well, we're kind of out of seats. Hmm. So why should we have a, a MECO kid or a kid from the city when we have a kid who lives here who needs a chair in this kindergarten.
0: Right. So it's already sort of, I don't want to diminish it, but there's already sort of a token diversity, but there's already a low ceiling too as well. Like, yeah, yeah. This how much we're willing to, to tolerate.
1: Yeah. You know, one thing I wanted to jump in on, Matthew, when you said cultural ambassador, this is the <laughs> thing that's like totally intangible about that experience that is hard to sometimes convey to people. Um, although I think being like, on a podcast called Code Switch is a good place to do it. Um, it's a safe space. Yeah, well, you know, there somebody did actually do some research. Some Harvard uh, folks did some research back in, like, eh, 1997 or so, where they, like, surveyed some Metco students as adults and said, what was this like for you? And they figured out the graduation rates. They figured out all that stuff, and that, that was all really good and above average. But there, was, there were things like um, people said that they felt as though they could – essentially kind of navigate authority and authority figures, right? Mm. Like you, you looked at your teachers as people, like, if you don't like your grade, you could go to your teacher and say, I want to have a conversation right. about you this. You could negotiate with them. You could negotiate. And advocate for yourself. Yeah, and, and advocate for yourself. You also, like, got the benefit, and this is a class thing, of all the resources in that environment. So it's not just about getting help with your college applications. It's knowing about colleges, And like which ones you could go to or not go to or being waitlisted or that there were scholarships. Sometimes these conversations, like because they happen among students, like you're talking to each other, that fosters something inside of you. Like now you're like, oh, I get it. I understand this. Like, now I'm going to visit colleges. I mean, these were things that, like, my parents didn't know anything about this. They were um, immigrants. And so I think that part I found really intriguing. And and finally, people felt like they could navigate white spaces. They could navigate spaces that mimicked their education. So if you've already, from age, like kindergarten, you know, to eighth grade, been one of two, three, four black kids in your class— then it's not so strange to be on a college campus like that as well, right? You don't feel, it's not a big culture shock. And you don't feel that way when you walk into your first office, too.
0: So let me ask both of you, what do you think that the white kids and these schools um, that get medical kids from the city, what do you think they get out of it? I mean, they're not getting paid by the state. So What are they getting out of it?
2: Matthew, what do you think? Um, I think it's a starting point, at least, for the the same kind of uh, understanding what it means to work across difference. But from the white perspective, I think it's unfortunate that there's so few students of color in, in these receiving schools. But I think that's at least a starting point. I think you could look at suburban schools in other parts of the country. They don't even have that five percent. Right. I think it's a it's a starting point to understand issues of, of class, issues of diversity and do that on a day to day basis. It's hard. In many cases, students don't have to do this until they get to college or in some cases, they don't have to do it at all.
1: And I should say there are some um, school systems uh, host school districts like Brookline, the original one that takes a ton of METCO kids, but also has great diversity now, you know, have Mm -hmm. many more like black and Latino and Asian students than they did back then. You know, I had a big conversation with the, about this with my sister. She was in the Metco program. She was a few years younger than me. And she was, like, still friends for a while with the kids that um, – with white kids' classmates. From the suburbs. From the suburbs. And um, they stayed in communication for a few years. I think she said, like, oh, I'm still Facebook friends with one of them. Um, and, you know, I don't – I don't know how that works. It's not necessarily like you build lasting friendships, but I feel that way about high school in general. Right, you know, right. like I'm, like those are very nice colleagues, and I hope to meet them again one day. Um, <laughs> but but it's but you get to, you do get to have these conversations, um, and I think the the problem comes in when when you do hear people criticize Mecca, or where you do hear kids of color and alumni criticize it it was very taxing to be the cultural ambassador. Right, right. You know, it was very taxing to explain to people things all the time. You were the explainer. This is
0: the thing we've been talking about a lot on the podcast lately.
1: And this is not like new millennial style, right? Yeah, like, mm-hmm. y'all are always like, I'm like, not here to explain <laughs> things to you. Go on the internet. Go on your, your favorite Tumblr. First like, of all, you always talk I, like I'm a millennial, you and, are a millennial millennial. we're the same age. Check with Pew, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> According to the Pew survey people, I am like Gen X Slayton. <laughs> um, but for... Us, it was like you are here. You are the diversity.
0: Mm-hmm. That's so enough. So this is your job. That's your job.
1: So yeah, you're the one who has to tell me like, don't touch my hair. You're the one who has to tell me that you're not poor. Not everyone's a criminal. You're the one who has to say just because I'm a Mecco kid doesn't mean X Y Z. That
0: was your job. So are you like being a hipster about being a racial ambassador? Like well, we did before <laughs> it was cool.
1: Yeah. Well, it wasn't cool. It was painful. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like it's not. Um, yeah. It, it was not easy.
0: Matthew, did you want to add something?
2: Uh, nope. I think that's, that's good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and we should say, I mean, we haven't said this really explicitly, but we should say this explicitly that, you know, these parents who are putting their kids in Metco, um to more affluent schools, it's not that these people are just sending like, oh, this is a, this is a school full of white kids. It's better. It's because resources tend to follow white people.
2: Absolutely. And the bittersweetness from sort of a historical perspective is women like Ruth Batson, Ellen Jackson, who, who initiated these programs in the 1960s, saw this as a crucial first step while Boston Public Schools were being improved. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Boston Public Schools never really caught up to the level that they would have liked to see, but they never saw this as a way of just sitting their kids next to, to white students, but they saw complete intransigence on behalf of the Boston School Committee that nothing was changing in the Boston Public Schools, and they had to go where the resources were. Um, but it was always about resources, not just about sitting next to students of a different race.
0: So that's Matthew Delmont. Uh, he's a professor at Arizona State University. He's the author of Why Bussing Failed, Race, Media, and the National Resistance to School Segregation. Matthew, thanks for uh, rocking with us today.
2: Hey, thanks so much for having me, Gene. Great talking to you again, Audie.
1: Yeah, good to hear from you.
0: <laughs> so, Audie, I'm just curious. What did you get from your time at MECO and in Newton?
1: Oh, 100% exposure to class mm-hmm. and how to navigate that. You know, what does it mean to be the person in the room who's struggling and, and people don't really know that? What does it take to overcome the deficits you might have because you didn't have the support and resources to get you there? You know, I remember as a kid, I think maybe the fourth grade in this suburban school system, they had this incredibly kind of arcane and I found somewhat difficult reading system, like mm-hmm. a color coded based reading system so that you could like look at the, a word and break it down by color and break out. It was just insane. And I remember leaving recess and going back into the classroom and just standing there in front of that colored board trying to figure it out Hmm. because I was not going to be left behind. (laughs) You know, like my parents wouldn't stand for that and I wouldn't stand for that. And I think that um, is something I took with me. And then later on in life, I, I did have a kind of confidence going into junior high and high school that said... No one has confidence going into junior high school. Well, not that kind of confidence, but the smarts kind, where mm. I was like, oh, no, I'm smart. I went to school in Newton. Like, I would, in mm. my mind, still have this thing of like, no, no, I've, I've been toe-to-toe with the really smart kids, and I can do this. So don't you dare tell me I can't. And I think that also propelled me going
0: forward. Audi Cornish. Yeah. Um, you ask good questions. You should be a host of a show.
1: Uh, you know, I try.
0: <laughs> Audie Cornish is the host of All Things Considered on NPR. Yep. Um, she's our play cousin, and I'm glad you finally came by. <laughs> finally, finally.
1: Yeah, you yeah. Know. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, y'all. That's our show for this week. We want to hear from you. You can email us at codeswitch at npr.org. Follow us on Twitter at NPR codeswitch. You should definitely, definitely subscribe to our podcast, wherever fine podcasts can be found or streamed. Walter Ray Watson produces episode. Our editorial assistant is Leah Danella. Original music by Rom Team Arab Louie. A shout out to the rest of the Code Switch family Adrian Florido, Karen Grixby Bates, and Kat Chow. Our editors are Barry Hardiman, Keith Woods, and Allison McAdam. My co host Shereen Marisol Meraji is back next week. I'm Gene Demby. Be easy.